Good morning, Four Corners. <clears throat> it's a tremendous blessing to be together, to sing those words, to pray, to be instructed in God's word, to fellowship together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as God's people, as his holy ones. I pray that your heart this morning is here, as, as Chris prayed earlier, that we are present here and not elsewhere in our minds. You know, it's hard. It's hard any time we gather, but I think particularly this time of year, uh, most of us probably have something going on this afternoon. If not, we know we're all going to be gathered back here again, or I hope uh, many of us this evening. So um, there's lots of things that can distract us, and I hope and pray that your heart is here and that we have this thing called self-control. And How often we just simply need self-control to guard our minds from the places that they could go. Well, where they need to go right now is to Exodus chapter 15. So if you go ahead and go there in your Bibles, Exodus 15, verses 1 to 3. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the parting of the Red Sea, this most famous of miracles in the history of the world, this great moment in redemptive history in the Bible, the parting of the Red Sea. And we spent some time looking at the lead-up to that great miracle, and then the miracle itself in Exodus chapter 14. And so uh, we spent three weeks looking at that entire chapter. The first half was really the lead-up to it. Um, as the uh, children of Israel, as the Israelites, are facing off against the Egyptians, they have the, the sea on one side and the Egyptians on the other. God parted the sea and led his people through on dry ground, we are told. This amazing, miraculous event where God dries up the ground. He uses a wind. He parts the sea. He dries up the ground. So you may have thought in your mind that the Israelites are going through on this kind of slushy, uh, muddy ground. And they're just sort of trying to make their way through. God does not just move the water. He dries out the ground. Incredible act of his great power, but as I said before, from his perspective, not really all that big a deal because he made the water and he made the land and he made the human beings who went through the water on the dry land. We also read in Exodus 14 that after the Israelites go into the sea, they pass through the sea, that the Egyptians go in after them. And then, of course, at the end, God brings the water back down upon the Egyptians, destroying his enemies and saving his people. He destroys the enemies of his people. He removes them from being a threat to the descendants of Abraham. Listen to the conclusion of the story in Exodus 14, verses 30 to 31. This is what it says. Thus... The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Someone came up to me last week after, afterwards and asked a, a, a very good question, a very rational question. Uh, if... The sea covered them, and they went down. They sunk in the sea. We get that language throughout the, the Old Testament. Then how is it that they end up on the shore? 
And I think we are meant to understand that as God sends this east wind and drives back the water, uh, ending in the shore where the Israelites started, when he draws back that wind, the water begins to come in. And as the Egyptians are fleeing, remember, they're not running towards the Egyptians when God, um, towards the Israelites when God brings the water back. They're running, they're fleeing. They're going back to the shore from which they came. God withdraws that wind and he brings the water down upon the, Israelite, uh, upon the Egyptians. So how is it, if the waters came down upon them, that their bodies are seen on the shore. And this is the amazing thing. Is we really don't know the answer to that question, the dynamics, the mechanics of the whole thing. But what we know is that God brought that wind back and he brought that water down in such a way that he utterly annihilated those who were within the midst of the sea and he worked so that their bodies were drawn onto the shore so that the Israelites could see them. No question in the Israelites' mind as to what had happened to their enemies. They could see with their own eyes that, as I said last week, those who had oppressed them, enslaved them, those who had murdered ruthlessly their babies, were there dead on the shore. Today we come to the immediate aftermath of the Red Sea crossing. For the last few weeks, we've looked at God's glory at the sea. And now, in chapter 15, we come to God's praises at the sea. And so that's going to be our title for this morning. God's praises at the sea, part one. And so we'll be looking just at those first three verses. The people erupt in song. They've gone through the sea on dry ground with the water as a wall to them on the right and a wall to them on the left. And now... They erupt in song. They respond to the Red Sea event by singing praises to the Lord. This song, which has been called the Song of the Sea, is one of three songs written by Moses in the Bible. We have this one. We have Deuteronomy 32 and then Psalm 90. One of three songs written by Moses that we have recorded for us in Scripture. It is the first great record of the corporate singing of God's people that we have in the Bible. And for that reason, I think it is so interesting and amazing to come to a passage like this to see, to go all the way back. Now, we know, of course, that God's people would have sung together before this. And we have little poetic expressions of praise that we've already seen as we walk through Genesis and then into Exodus. But this is the first great record of the corporate singing of God's people that we have in the Bible. And it would be easy to take that for granted, but it is meant to set the tone for the rest of the praise that we find in the Bible. It's meant to set the tone for all of the Psalms. One commentator, Victor Hamilton, describes it this way. He says, this scene with an enormous choir singing God's praises, anticipates the thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand who encircle the heavenly throne in the New Jerusalem. Revelation 5, verses 11 to 12. To sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. What that tells us is that this psalm... This song, this hymn that we find here in Exodus 
is both foundational and anticipatory. It is foundational to what we're doing here this morning as we've come in and we've sung together as God's people. We have done what we find here in Exodus 15. And so we recognize that what we've done together this morning in singing praises to God is founded in, it's rooted in this text. We also see that this passage is anticipatory of not just what we're doing this morning, but of what we'll spend eternity doing before the Lord. This is what God's people do. So what I want to do today really is just dip our toe in this song. And you can tell that by the verses 1 to 3. Today we're just going to look at these first three verses. And don't worry, that doesn't mean that we're going to be in this. Although it's wonderful and rich, doesn't mean we're going to be in this for a month. Uh, We'll finish it next week, Lord willing. We'll come back and we'll take on the rest, verses 4, all the way up through verse 21. So we'll fold in Miriam's song as well. But today, I just want to lean into it by looking at these first three verses. These opening verses tell us why we sing. So they're so full of import for helping us understand what we do when we gather as God's people to worship. It tells us what we're doing when we praise God in song. It gives us an opportunity to go back to the original act of corporate singing recorded in Scripture in order to understand what it is to sing God's praises. What are we even doing? How often have you found yourself, I know I have, many times, singing mindlessly? Just going at it. And your mind is somewhere else. What are we doing when we sing? Is it just about making noises and we can be there or not? Mentally, they're partially and then we're gone and then we're back. What are we doing when we sing God's praises? A text like this gives us the meaning, the importance, and the reason for all of our corporate singing just in the first three verses and all of our private and family praise. So not just all the singing of praise that we do when we're gathered together corporately, but also all of our praising God in the car as we're driving. Or praising God while we're trying to brush our teeth, or while we're doing dishes, or folding laundry, or whatever. Praising God with our families in family worship, all of this can be traced back to what we find here. So as I said, next week we'll come back and take on the rest of it, but today we'll just do the first three verses. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. This is the word of the Lord, or thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider... He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. 
This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. Ask that the Lord would illuminate his word. You know, unless the Lord illuminates his word and uses the preaching, unless he works in our hearts, we have nothing. We have no hope of anything. But God promises to do this work among us and in us when we are in his word. He promises to do that. So we have great hope as we come to the Lord this morning. Great hope that God will work mightily in us by means of his word. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful for time to gather this morning together as your people. We're grateful that you have given us food to eat spiritually, that you have given us what we need in order to be equipped for every good work, in order to stand against the evil one, in order to bear fruit for your glory, in order to let our light shine before men. That our Heavenly Father, you, Lord, would be glorified. So God, we pray that you would help us now in the preaching of your word and in the listening to your word read and preached. God, that you would help all of us to see your glory. And as we see the glory of your Son, that we would be transformed into his glory from one degree to another. Lord, that we would be more and more like Christ as a result of our time here together today. Father, we thank you for our tongues. We thank you for our lips. We thank you for our vocal cords and our lungs. We thank you, God, that you have given us the ability to make utterances to you. And, and not just these, these physical aspects of our, of our bodies, but Lord, you have also given us a, an intelligent soul And you have given that intelligent soul an intelligent brain. You have joined us, body and soul, together in such a way that we, unlike any other creature in your physical world, Lord, we can praise you. We can meditate on you and sing to you and declare your greatness. The animals of this world declare your greatness in their mere existence, but They cannot praise you with their minds. Father, we, by your grace and goodness, you have made us so that we can praise you. And Lord, we pray that this morning, uh, the time spent together would enhance our understanding of praise and that it would sharpen and intensify and, and make more passionate our praise of you with our lips. God, help us to be those who praise you from the heart and also from the lips. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us first in Christ before the world began. As in love, you predestined us for adoption as sons in Christ Jesus before the world began. Father, we praise you for your great love, your steadfast love, your faithful love, your enduring love. The love which holds us in your hand. We thank you, Father, that no one can snatch us out of your hand. And that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we praise you that we have time together as believers. Would we take advantage of it this morning, Lord? Would we not just, uh, at the end of the service, race to leave? Would we not just think, okay, we got 
uh, what we needed and now we're going to go. Lord, would we spend time with your people. We call you Father. Help us take note of our brothers and our sisters. God, help us to love our neighbor as ourselves because we love you, our God. Be with us now, we pray, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to spend our time looking at four characteristics of singing God's praises. And so here they are, singing God's praises. It is a proper reaction. It is a prayer response. It is a personal relationship, and it is a profound recognition. So if you would like to write those down, you can. But These are four characteristics of our singing of praises to God that we get just from these first three verses. And by the way, this is echoed throughout. What we find in the first three verses is more general. And then beginning in verse 4, it gets more specific regarding what God did and what God's going to do. By the time you get to the end of this song, the the conquest of Canaan is in view. And and so the, the Israelites are not just singing based on what God did. They're singing with great hope in what God is going to do. But as we look at these first three verses, we get a bit of an introduction to the whole thing. And it helps us to step back and just reflect on the nature of praise in general before we get into specifically what will be sung by the Israelites. So a proper reaction, a prayer response, a personal relationship, and a profound recognition. So let's begin with this first one, a proper reaction. What have the people just seen? We described it as God's glory at the sea. So three sermons we had on chapter 14, and all of them fall under this one idea. God's glory at the sea. Chapter 14, verse 4, the Lord says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And then we read in verse 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Uh, Saying God's glory at the sea is not just us tagging on this big idea to this passage. It's what God wants us to get from Exodus chapter 14. And so in both halves of that chapter, God makes clear that everything he's doing at the sea is about his glory. He is glorifying himself at the sea. So what have the people just seen? The answer is they have seen God's glory. His magnificence and majesty, his holiness and power, the faithfulness of his promise, and the seriousness of his judgment. And so many other things there at the sea. As we read last week, the immediate response to this encounter with God's glory happens in the heart. We saw that at the end of chapter 14. The people see God glorified. They see God's glory on display. And the immediate reaction to that is a matter of the heart. The people fear God and they trust God. So it happens. The fear of God and faith in God, it happens in The heart. This is what it says in verse 31. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord 
and in his servant Moses. But the heart is not where it ends. That is where it begins, but that is not where it ends. And I want to I really drive this point home this morning. Sometimes we live a very interior life, and we think that is quite sufficient. You know, and our culture tells us you just need to keep all that stuff to yourself. You just need to keep all that faith to yourself and all that devotion and adoration and all. That's just really something. Everyone else can be very expressive about whatever's going on on the inside of their hearts, but Christians need to keep all of that just bottled up on the inside, or at the very least, just keep it in your church buildings. Just keep it in your heart, keep it in your home, keep it in your church buildings. But maybe this is just part of the way that you operate. It's just a very interior matter. It's all really a matter of the heart. But what I want you to see is that this perception of God's glory moves from the heart to the lips. There's movement here. This is dynamic. It moves from within us to outside of us. It cannot be immobile. It must move from the interior to the exterior. And the result of this movement, as we follow the logic here between chapter 14 with the fear of God and the faith in God and the beginning of chapter 15 with all of this singing, The result of this movement is clear. It is singing and praising. So let me just ask you a question this morning. How is your mobility? And you see these commercials and talking about something very different. Talk about mobility. But I'm asking about your praise mobility. How is the movement inside of you and outside of you? What is the movement like between the heart and the lips. And let me just speak very personally here. I don't have anyone in mind. I promise. I assure you I have no one in mind. Why is it that we come to church and we stand there while God's people are singing with our lips shut? Maybe you didn't grow up seeing daddy sing. Maybe you didn't grow up seeing mommy sing. And maybe you think you just are a terrible singer. And I feel the same way about myself. But whatever the case, whatever learned behavior you have, whatever insecurities you have, let that movement take place from the heart to the lips. How can you stand there while God's people are praising and just in perfect stoicism stand with lips closed And tongue down. No. No. Praise the Lord with your lips. I don't want to make anyone I stand behind uncomfortable on Sunday morning. Uh, And I'm I'm not looking around taking notes. But let me just encourage you. Ask yourself. I want to press into you this morning. Ask yourself, why don't I sing? Why? Why do I stand there when everyone else is singing and my lips do not move? Search your heart. Ask yourself those tough questions. Work on your 
mobility. This singing of praise is the proper reaction to God's glory. It is the proper reaction to God's acting in history, to what God does. We see the logic in two places in verse 1. So just look carefully with me there at verse 1. This is the logic of praise. Verse 1, notice these words. And you got to always catch these little words. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying... I will sing to the Lord for, I will sing to the Lord because, you see the logic? He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. In other words, after seeing God's glory, this is the natural proper thing to do. See it, then. See it, then. This is the logical natural, proper reaction. This is what you do. Sing to the Lord. Let me say it this way. God did that. Now we do this. God did that. Now we do this. And we do this because God did that. So either way, focus on the then Or focus on the because, because it's the same idea. God did that, we do this. We do this because God did that. There is a logic here, and it centers on God's glory. It centers on God's acts. God acts, we praise. That's how it works. This is also what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. There's a lot of talk in our Christian culture about being filled with the Spirit. And we're told that this is an important idea in Scripture, that we are to be filled with the Spirit. But what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 20, I think, gives us a very clear understanding of what this is. We don't need to go into some uh, mystical speculation about this. It really is quite concrete. Ephesians 5 verses 18 to 20, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. By the way, this is the alternative to substance abuse. Let me just say, Anyone in the congregation, and I don't know anyone in the congregation who's struggling with substance abuse. Anyone in the congregation who's struggling with drugs or alcohol or whatever. Listen to the apostle. This is what we are to replace that with. No longer do that. It's a deception. Be filled with the spirit. That is very much not a deception. And then he says this, he qualifies what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So we're not left just sort of speculating on this whole thing, coming up with our own idea based on our own emotions, our own experiences, or whatever. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, by the way, What's going on in the heart? 
in the previous verse, the previous phrase shows up with the mouth. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the proper reaction of, to Christmas. This is the proper reaction to God's salvation in and through Jesus Christ. And it comes from the Spirit. So, so here's the thing. Uh, being filled with the Spirit, having God's Word dwelling in our hearts richly, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, is what we find in the parallel in Colossians. To have the Word of Christ dwelling in us, ri us richly, to have the gospel of our salvation in and through Christ, and to give thanks to God for that, results in this kind of melodious, musical activity. On the inside and on the outside. And it pours over from us personally into how we relate in our relationships. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. This is not performance. This is not artificial. This is not concocted. This is just genuine, natural, proper reaction to what God has done in Christ. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. But there's another thing I want you to see here about the logic of praise. This verb, he has triumphed gloriously in verse 1, is better translated by the New American Standard Bible as he is highly exalted. It gets closer to the, the, what, the idea that is there in Hebrew. He is highly exalted. God has highly exalted himself by defeating the Egyptians, it says, by throwing them into the sea. Now notice this. This is very interesting. Then a little later, we read this at the end of verse 2. I will exalt him. Do you see that? What is Moses and everyone else singing? They're saying, God has highly exalted himself. I will exalt him. God has exalted God, and now I will exalt God. Our lifting God up in praise is the natural outworking of God lifting himself up in glory. Now consider this. Um, God is already up there. Right? So he doesn't need you to lift him up. He doesn't need me to lift him up. He doesn't need us. It's amazing sometimes you hear uh, Christians talk about God. It's like he's just so needy. God is needy of nothing. He is entirely sufficient in himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, before the world began, after he created the world, and when the new heavens and new earth come. God does not need our praises. Oh, i got to get him up. He's already up. He's already there. He highly exalts himself. And it's when we see him high and lifted up, that we then, as a proper reaction, lift him up in our own hearts and with our own lips. So before we really get into the meat of this song, we see a proper reaction that praise is a proper reaction to God's great acts. Secondly, we come to a prayer response. Singing God's praises is a prayer response. And here I want to briefly draw your attention to something that you may not have considered. You know it 
intuitively, but it may not be something that you've thought about explicitly or consciously. We have a tendency to compartmentalize everything in our lives, and some of us more than others. And what happens is we do the same thing when it comes to our worship. So we don't just compartmentalize, you know, work and family and all that stuff. We don't just compartmentalize our finances. We don't just compartmentalize our schedule. But we, we compartmentalize our worship. We compartmentalize our religious activities. So it is probably the case, as we're gathered here this morning, that many of us have a very thick line drawn in our minds between the two categories of singing and praying. We sing we pray. Singing is over here. Praying is over here. These two things are distinct. Thick line drawn between the two. It is one thing to pray and quite another thing to sing. But what I want you to see this morning is that this passage blends the two together. It effectively erases the line between singing and praying. And so my hope when you leave here this morning is that the line that you have drawn in your mind between singing and praying, that that line would be erased no matter how thick it is. It might even be a little dotted line. It might be a little faint line. But whatever it is, that you erase that line between singing and praying in order that your singing and your praying might be enriched. What I want you to see this morning is that what we have here is a prayer to the Lord. Look again at verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel, notice, notice the language. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this to Yahweh. They sang this to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea to the lord we see the same thing for example in judges chapter 5 verse 3 with deborah and barak to the lord i will sing i will make melody to the lord the god of israel we see it with david in second samuel 22 verse 1 And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song. On the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Now notice this. The words that I just read, that's the beginning of this song that he sings to the Lord. He speaks about the Lord in the third person. And that's exactly what we find in our song. For he has triumphed gloriously. And David says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. He is speaking about God in the third person. And yet this is speech to the Lord. This is a basic point. But I think it needs to be emphasized once again. When we sing praises, we are singing to the Lord. 
Words are not just rattling around in our mouths or in our minds or we're, we're not just sort of singing together in unison and making sure we stay lined up. We are singing these things to Yahweh. We are praying to him. We are communicating to, to him. We are communing with him. So let me just ask you, how would, the, how would recognizing this, thinking of this consciously, affect your singing if you saw it as prayer? If every time you came to church to be with God's people, when I say to church, I don't mean to a building, I mean to, to the assembling of God's people. If every time you came to church, if the song began to play and we all began to sing and you thought of it in terms of prayer, what would that do? To our corporate singing? What would that do to your own singing? What would that do to the singing that we do as a family when we're gathered in our homes as families? We are singing, yes. We are praying, yes. Both and. And not just when we say, you, oh God, in our song. But when we speak of God in the third person, when we talk of his greatness, we are even then directing our song to the Lord in prayer. Let me ask it a different way. How would it affect your prayer life if you began to understand your singing to be praying? If every time you sang to the Lord, you were thinking, I am praying. Just imagine what this would do to your, pray, your praying, your prayer life. The way that you think about communing with God, communicating to God. So we see that singing praises to God is a prayer response. It's a proper reaction. It grows out of the logic of God's acts, God's glory. And it is a prayer response. It is communing with God. It is talking to God. Now, thirdly, we come to, it is a personal relationship. Look at the beginning of the song up through the end of verse 2. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. There's one big thing when you read through this that you have to notice. It is all of this first-person language. It's just packed. It's saturated with this first-person language. I will sing to the Lord. He is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. My Father's God. I will exalt Him. Just in such a short space, you're inundated with all of this personal, first-person language. This is an avalanche of personal language. Yes, it is true that this is corporate singing with this massive number of Israelites praising God together. I mean, this has been incredible. You know, I go to conferences and uh, there's 5,000, 6,000 people singing. That's absolutely amazing. But here we have 6,000 men plus women and children. The foreigners uh, mixed in with that praising God in song. So yes, uh, it is true that this is corporate singing. But it is also true that this corporate singing 
is personal singing. Every heart is communing with God. Every single heart is praying and relating to his or her God. God saves individuals. God gives new birth to individual hearts. He lets light shine out of darkness in individual sinners. Anytime you hear corporate singing, you are hearing the expression of individual rescued sinners singing to God together. It is corporate, but it is still very much personal as every one of us on a Sunday morning sings praises to his or her God. Our singing praises to God is an act of personal relationship. So let me just Once again, let me press into you on this. Could it be that the desire to sing for you is just not there? And could it be that the reason why the desire to sing is not there and the singing is not there is because the knowing is not there? Could it be that there's no personal relationship from which to draw The well is dry. It's empty. There's just nothing coming out because there's no living water beneath. There is no place for my or I because you do not know God. Maybe. Consider your ways. Consider your heart. And this morning... Consider your singing. When we come to know God, our heart will push. Even if we have a habit of not singing, our heart, maybe it's just in the shower for you right now, but our heart will will push. It will push this up and out of the mouth. It does that. It's a natural kind of thing. And it's filled with eyes and my but centered on the Lord's glory. And that's another thing too. When we think about our corporate, we, our, our corporate songs when we gather to worship, we're not interested in sitting around and just navel-gazing on our experiences. That's not, that's not what we're here to do. We're here to glorify God. The songs we sing must be about the Lord. and They must be about His glory. They must be about His acts. But that doesn't mean that we don't plug ourselves into those With with this personal relationship, it is what God has done for me. It is what God has done for us. It is his great saving acts and his glory to his people. That's what we praise him for. But it is not centered on our personal experiences. You listen to some of these songs. And I've, I've had radio stations over the years that I really like to listen to. Christian radio stations. And, and it's like the Lord is central. And then all of a sudden it's just a bunch of sappy, personal, experiential, existential whatever. It's just all about me. That's the heart of sin. And it can show up even in our singing. It's just all about me. It's all about my personal fulfillment in life. It's all about what God can do for me. It's all about how God makes me feel and so forth. It's just not about God's glory. It's not about God being a rock. And then we plug ourselves and our experiences and our hearts and our thoughts and our futures into that great glorious rock. That's what corporate singing is. 
That's what it must be. And here, the people tell the Lord, Yahweh, you are my strength. Yahweh, you are my song. Yahweh, you are my salvation. Psalm 59, verse 17. In that psalm, David says this, O my strength, I will sing praises to you. He calls God his strength. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. And here we see that the idea of God being our strength is associated with his love for us. So when we hear that God is our strength, we're not just meant to see God as great and mighty and powerful. We're meant to find in his strength his love, not just power. It's not just God's sheer might. It's God's sheer might on our behalf. It's God's power on our behalf. It's God's power blazing like the sun in love for his people. O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. You know, he is our fortress when we are under attack. Do you see God that way? Do you see him as your strength, your very present help in time of need, that he really is your strength? When you encounter things in life, do you run into the fortress? If you were out in the fields, in a medieval village outside of the castle, and you saw something coming, you were going to run into the fortress. You were going to run into the castle, into the safe place, the fortified place. Do we run into the castle of the living God when we face trials? Or do we just fall apart? Do we just melt into despair? Or do we look for something that will just numb us? Do we look for some physical thing or some substance or some relationship? Do we just read a novel because we want to escape our lives and we want to just enter into somebody else's life? What do we do? Just watch show after show after show after show. Or do we run to the castle? Do we run into the fortress who is our strength, who shows us his steadfast love? Jeremiah 16, 19. O Lord, my strength, And my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. For God to be our strength means that he is our resting place when we face trouble. We run to him with all of our cares and troubles. How many cares and troubles this morning are you just holding on to? Are you putting in your pocket? Are you not bringing to the Lord? Knowing that he is your strength in time of trouble. Whatever that trouble may be. Emotional trouble, physical trouble, relational trouble. God is our fortress. He is our strength. And he is the one who helps in time of trouble. He is our refuge. This is a personal. You see the personal language? It's not just head knowledge. It's not just being puffed up with all sorts of doctrines, propositions, and Bible knowledge. It's about knowing God. It's about leaning on God. In all of life, it's about saying with your life, you are my strength and my song. You are my salvation. 
Isaiah 46, 1. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. Do you see here how God being our strength comes together with God being our song? Once again, you cannot help when God is your strength to also have him as your song. Let me say that again. If God is your strength, he will necessarily be your song because the response, the natural response to leaning on God, to running to God, to finding safety in God is to exult in God. Do you see that? It is to rejoice in God. It is to be glad and happy and satisfied in God. And that comes out of our mouths. It doesn't just stay in our hearts. It comes out with much thanks. When was the last time you gave thanks to the Lord for anything? For anything. Filled with exultation and gratitude. As they saw the Egyptians approach, Moses told them in 14.13, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And then in chapter 14, verse 30, we read the fulfillment. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day. The people recognized that God had saved them, but even more, that God himself was their salvation. You know, it's not that God gives salvation. That is true. But it is that God himself is. He is our salvation. God is these things for us. This is the song of Mary at the Annunciation. When the angel comes to her and announces the conception and the birth of Christ to follow. Luke chapter 1 verse 47. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This is who the Lord, the God of Israel was to Mary. He was her Savior. In other words, she said, my salvation, my strength, and my song. And it is our song. As we say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ Jesus has become for me, Christ Jesus has become for me wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. His very name is salvation. Yeshua, the salvation of the Lord. He is our salvation. We don't need for Jesus to give us something. We need Jesus. We don't just need his gifts. We don't need him to come and impart something. We need everything that he is. That's why he's called our bread. That's why having him is having living water. He is the one we need. He is our strength. He is our song. And he is our salvation. And is that the case for you this Christmas? You know, Christmas, really, what is celebrated in our world is is just kind of a pagan thing. Very little about Christ often. Everywhere you go is just, in some cases, nothing about Christ at all. As you think about Christmas, Christianly understood, is Christ your strength? Is he your song? Is there a song in your heart 
built on a personal relationship with Christ. That's why we praise. As I said a couple of weeks ago, that's the reason why when you get converted and then you come up on Christmas time and you hear these songs, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. They just blow your mind. You, you just lose it in praise, right? Before, they were just songs. But now, oh my goodness, God, you are my strength. You are my song. You are my salvation. And you're singing the richness of that with all the world during Christmas. Before we move on, I want you to notice one more thing here. In this song, my father's God has become my God. Do you see that? There's the recognition that God is my father's God, and then the recognition that he is my God. What he has been to others, he now is to me. And so here, I want to speak to children, and I want to speak to those of you who have grown up in church and maybe have never been converted. You're, you're, you're a cultural Christian. You're a nominal Christian. Mom and dad took you to church. When you turned, you know, 18 or when you left home, you went off and, you know, you married someone who wanted to go to church, wanted to raise the kids in church. And uh, whether you're a lady or, or a man, you, you, you don't know the Lord. You've just been coming to church. You've been in church for a long time. And if church attendance could save you, you know, you might be in. But it can't. It can't save you. And so maybe you're just a cultural Christian. You just move through childhood. You move through teenage years. You've moved through adulthood, and you're just coming along to church, but there's no life. There's no God in there. It's just church. It's just what you do. And then to you, child, being raised in a Christian home, the Lord might be mommy's strength, might be daddy's salvation, but is he yours? He must become your God, not just mom and dad's God, not my father's God. That's not sufficient. My God, my strength, my refuge, my fortress, my very present help in time of need. That's Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. No one will be saved because their father was saved. We know that from the kings of Israel. Hezekiah, to Manasseh, and so forth. Just because daddy is saved or mommy is saved doesn't mean you're going to join them one day in glory. It must be a personal relationship. And expressions of praise or the lack thereof is one of the best ways you'll know whether or not you know this God for yourself. Finally, a profound recognition Singing praises to God is a profound recognition. Let's finish up this morning by looking at verse 3. We're just going to look at that one verse. It says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. These introductory verses end with mention of God's name. Such a theme in the Bible, especially in Exodus this great theme of God's name, our praise to God is in and of itself a profound recognition of God's name. That's what it is to praise God. 
You ask, what is the meaning of praise? When I'm singing and I'm, I'm meditating on these words and I'm praying them to God, all that we've talked about so far, what are we doing? We are, we could say, recognizing God's name as we do it. Who he is, his character, his attributes, his nature, the greatness of his holiness and his glory. We praise God in view of who he has revealed himself to be. So let me ask you this question. If praising him is about profound recognition of his name, how will we praise him without knowledge about him? Think about that for a moment. If, if what it means to praise, see, people sometimes talk about the head versus the heart. All that stuff just goes out the window for me because they're always joined. You know, you can't leave the head at home and then get out here with your heart. What does that even mean? The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? I hope you're not just walking around with your heart. You're in bad shape if that's what you're doing. If you're following your heart, you're in bad shape. We never leave our minds behind because to praise God with a full, rich, overflowing heart is to know his name. And that means knowing God's word. It means knowing scripture. It means knowing what Jeremiah had to say, what Isaiah had to say, what Moses had to say, what Paul had to say, what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had to say, what James had to say, and so on and so forth. It means knowing the Bible. We have to know with our minds who God is in and of himself so that we can praise him rightly. From the heart, with the mind, all of it woven together. Our singing is not mindless, it's not flippant, it's not sentimental, it's not merely feely. It's rock solid because we know God. We know who he is, we know what he's done, and we respond to those great truths with our hearts and with our lips. Part of what it means for God to be God, we find here, is that he is a warrior it uses the anthropomorphic language, or Moses uses the anthropomorphic language, calling God a man of war. Now, this is really interesting when you read this, because on one level, it is anthropomorphic for sure, right? We know that God is spirit. He does not have a body. And yet, in the, in the house of God's great revelation, we recognize that God becomes man later, right? God became man. And what do we see in Revelation 19? The glorious God-man, the Lord who is the man of war, executing judgment on the nations. We see that the Lord has literally become a man of war. God is a warrior. He is a conquering king. This is not some macho, chest-beating sort of slogan. This is just what the Bible teaches about God. God is a warrior. He is a conquering king. He conquers sin, death, hell, and the, and the devil. He conquers his enemies. He will judge the nations. He will send people to hell with the demons and Satan. Yahweh, in a word, is fierce. He is fierce. 
the image of C.S. Lewis's Aslan is just so fitting for this fierce Christ. Fierce and fluffy. Don't take that the wrong way. But as you think about Aslan, the imagery of, of his gentleness, the imagery of his meekness, his compassion, his softness, and yet he is fierce. That is Christ. Do you see him in his meekness? And maybe that's really where you like to dwell. But do you see him in his ferocity? As we close this morning, let me remind you of this. You are either, this morning, right now, this moment, you are either on the saving end or the damning end of his fierceness. Every person has a relationship to Christ's fierceness, to God's fierceness. Are you on the saving end or the damning end? His fierceness comes either on your behalf or on your head. If you do not know him, and if you are just waiting to hear those words, I never knew you, depart from me, you who work iniquity. If that is the case, the Jesus that you will see on that day will literally blow your mind as a man of war. He will be fierce with you because of your sin. He is the judge of all the earth. He will judge the living and the dead. Every worship of an idol, every rebellion against God's word, every hatred of neighbor, every secret lustful thought, every greedy act, everything you've ever done, Christ, the righteous judge, will fiercely deal with your sin. And he will cast you in hell. But this is the same one who died on the tree. By his wounds we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. Christ has taken that fierceness of God's wrath upon himself. That he would not pour that fierceness out on us on the day of judgment. Are you on the saving end or the damning end of God's fierceness? Let's pray. Father, we give you glory and praise for the beginning of this song in Exodus 15. God, how rich, how filled with wonder, and how precedent-setting it is as we think about what we're about to do here in a little bit as we sing again. Lord, would our singing be prayer? Would we, would we sing, God? But would we sing not because we heard a sermon where the preacher said you need to sing, but Lord, would we sing because we know you, because you are our strength and our song, because we have known your love in time of trouble. We have felt your love we have experienced your providence. And we see you enthroned in the pages of Scripture, in your great saving purposes through Jesus Christ. We see you putting your own son on the cross 
so that you could fiercely deal with him instead of us. So that you could crush him and punish him instead of us. Oh, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is just not converted, Lord, save them today. Help them stop playing games and pretending to be a Christian. Lord, help them fall on their faces before you and say, I am I am in need of a savior. Help them be like the tax collector at the temple, beating his chest, have mercy. Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in the heart of anyone here this morning who's not a Christian. And Lord, in the hearts of our kids, who are in some ways relying on mommy and daddy's faith, Lord, would, would you be their strength, their song, and their salvation? Would they come to say, in truth, the Lord is my God. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.